All right, so we just went through Sean's uh, favorite performers of the 1970s. And one of the cool things, Sean, about the 70s, just to kind of recap, is the fact that this list was not easy to compile. And uh, when I was trying to come up with my favorites, you know, I thought it was only going to be narrowing down 10 or 15. It ended up being about 30 or 40. I mean, yeah, there's same. a lot of live performers in the 1970s. Right. And I, I was surprised as well. I, I thought, oh, I'll just bang this thing out. I'll, I'll, I'll you know, I'll, I'll hit a dozen and I may struggle to come up with some more. But it was amazing when I went back and I, I started to explore how much I liked some of these artists. Sure. You know, because, you know, unfortunately, if you rely on kind of oldie stations, they're going to give you the same thing over and over again. Yeah, and uh, I think Sean's list, for those of you that tuned in for that, had some really interesting, but when you go back and think about it, I mean, how many people think about Glenn Campbell? But when you think about it, hey, I remember Glenn Campbell in the 70s, and what a big deal he was. A big to deal. Tony Orlando, what a big deal that guy was. He had his own television show. And. So, you know, there's some really good examples of very charismatic, let's face it, uh, you know, Tony Orlando without that charisma is probably playing in some club in New York City. He's uh, a lounge singer. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody with a decent voice, but you have to have that it factor to, to make it on this list. And I think, you know, Sean provided some really good examples of people that have the it, the wow factor that, that made them as popular as they were all right so now i'm kind of excited to uh to hear who you have because you know you kind of were making comments like during my list that most of the artists that i had uh, were not on your list so it would it's gonna be interesting just to see how your mind was working with this i was glad i was glad that we didn't have everything completely the same so there's at least a few and there's a few songs that we can share with our listeners that are the same artist, but maybe a different song that maybe they haven't heard for a little bit. Okay, so, and if it's the same song, it's been a week since they've listened to right. it. So. <laughs> so let's kick off with my number 15. Ah! Of course, we're talking about the famous Meatloaf. And this is Paradise by the Dashboard Light, which came out in 1977. And let's be honest with you, Meatloaf was not the most handsome guy no. around. But if you watch the video for this song, and I don't think I've ever seen a performer give so much in one song that I've ever seen in, in Paradise by the Dashboard Light. This, this guy is captivating to watch in this video. And... The song has legs. It still gets played at weddings to this day. You know, your your nephew, my son, is getting married in October. I might put a bet that this the song will end up getting requested by somebody, and here it is. You know, fifty years later. It it, it is kind of interesting because I do remember the video. You know, so we are at least the, at the beginning of the video era, and Meatloaf is this. More than overweight, he's obese. Yes, and you know, obese guy with you know long stringy hair, kind of a puffy prom blouse on of some sort. I don't want to wear a pirate shirt. <laughs> he's got kind of a scarf in his hand that he's wiping the sweat off, and uh -huh. and he is he's giving it his all. Now he had a little bit of notoriety from the Rocky Horror Picture Show. He, he is did. in there, and he does. 
he does uh, perform in that. We knew kind of who Meatloaf was, but the songs were written by Jim Steinman, who ended up having a very prolific career as a producer and a songwriter. He passed away about 15 years ago. And uh, Jim Steinman and Meatloaf tried just about everywhere to get this album made, and no record company would pick them up. And they were living off of these live performances. And Steinman would play the piano, and Meatloaf was the was the lead singer. And just based on the strength of his ability as a live performer is what kept them in music. Otherwise, the album never would have gotten off the ground. And the album's about out of hell, and I think it was one of the biggest selling albums of all time. It continues to sell to this day. It's I think it spent somewhere upwards of 300 weeks in the Billboard 200 chart uh, in terms of al- album sales. It's you know when you're when you're there that long, you're you're up there with the likes of Dark Side of the Moon, you know the Wall. You're talking the all time albums that have ever been. Uh, you know, put in record stores. Isn't it interesting that you hear that time and time again, some of the all time greatest albums, the record executives did not think were going to amount to anything. Yeah, because it's not, I guess what makes an album great is the fact that it's, it doesn't follow the same path. Remember record executives, they want to stay with the successful formula. They don't want to step outside of the box and become, uh, you know, because what could have been, you know, bad out of hell could be the next dud. You know, right. you could lose just as much money as you could make. So I can understand why they would be hesitant, but it's just, it never surprises me when, when the, when you hear about these albums that are so big and they struggle to be made. Interesting. I had not thought of Meatloaf. Believe it or not, he, I didn't even consider him. And that's why I was like immediately was like, oh, wow. Yeah, sure. That's great. That, that's a good one. You know, Meatloaf for, for a 70s performer is one of the first that popped into my mind because as a wedding DJ, it's been requested so many times over the years. And it still has the same reaction to the reception that it did when I started back in the mid-90s. It's still a very popular song, especially with people our age. Yeah, yeah, and I would agree with that. And there's you could have gone with a couple other songs on that album with Two Out of Three Ain't Bad. I mean, that, that was always one of my favorites. Took the words right out of yeah, my that, mouth. That's a, a good one. Yeah, yeah, so, no, good choice. All right, so that was my number 15, which was Meatloaf, and the song was Paradise by the Dashboard Light. My number 14 actually became bigger and bigger as his career has gone on and but was quite a big deal in the 1970s started out with the band faces in the 70s and then branched out into a solo career of course i'm talking about sir rod stewart And this was his first solo hit, which goes all the way back to 1971, which was Maggie May. He was technically still a part of Faces at this point. And then as he uh, left Faces and went out to his solo work, by the end of the 70s, 1978, 1979, there were few names as big on the charts as Rod Stewart because I think for regular record buyers, he kind of had that rock credibility. And he was one of the first guys to sort of branch into that eh, kind of disco sound with right. Do You Think I'm Sexy? Right. But before that, uh, Tonight's the Night, You're In My Heart, Hot Legs, 
uh, he had a lot of big hits, but there are few performers on stage as charismatic as Rod Stewart, and he did that well into his career. Sure. This almost made my list. In fact, this song was up for consideration, so I'm, I'm glad that I went in a different direction. Uh, yeah, no, no, Rod Stewart, when you think of the 70s and as far as you know, very popular uh, lead singers, especially those that kind of had like a, a trademark sound. I mean, there's, Rod's got that raspy voice. I don't know that anyone has ever sounded like Rod Stewart. And no. he also always had that distinct look, especially with his hair. Well, he was always very contemporary. And w- when I was doing my research on, on Rod for this broadcast, uh, you know, he used to hold the nickname Rod the Mod. And that was put on him back in the 1960s because they said he was obsessed with current clothes, current styles. You know, he had to be um, of somebody that had to wear the latest fashions. And that's the way he always was. He was always very, I guess you could say, very true to that time. You know, when you think about him, when he comes out in the late 80s, you know, he's, he's, he's dressing appropriate. He always kind of had that blonde, spiky hair. Right. But in terms of his style, he, he was always known as having a very good style. And even when you see him perform today, you know, he because he does that songbook tour, so he's dressed very appropriately. He's in a suit. He's in a tuxedo. You know, he's he's always well-dressed. Uh, I'm sure he has spent a lot of money on clothes over the years. Now, uh, and I'll let you tell the story because you're the one who told it to me. Um, and I, I might not remember all the details, but you had told me that that being age-appropriate actually hurt him with his marriage to Rachel Hunter. You're right, because after uh, Stuart and Rachel Hunter get married, you know, Rachel's considerably younger than him at the time. She's probably like 21, 22 years old. And Rod's probably in his late 40s, and she's thinking, I'm marrying a rock star. And all Rod wanted to do was sit around and tell stories about when he was a rock star. Well, that his rock star friends would come over. And they would come over, and they would sit around and tell stories about the days of when they used to live you know, oh, you remember Rod when you used to do this? And oh, yeah, yeah. They said all they would do is just sit around and tell stories. And she got bored. Yeah. So that was, yeah, that was his marriage to Rachel Hunter. Um, but Rod Stewart, uh, to me, was one of the defining faces for, for me as young Scotty High, one of the defining faces of the 1970s, particularly in the late 70s. Sure. I agree with that. All right. So that was my number 14. Now, if you would have said over the Gen X period, Rod Stewart certainly would have been much higher on my list because he had just as good of a career in the 80s as he did in the 1970s. So he got better with age, I mm-hmm. think. Um, this guy, my number 13, very much... Now, he had a little bit of a career in the 80s, but uh, for the most part, his his fame really came in the 1970s. Is that the best voice in rock? You could argue that. Many have. Paul Rogers. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is Paul Rogers with Bad Company. Um, yeah, there aren't too many guys that have a voice good enough to be asked by Queen to replace Freddie Mercury, which yeah. is what Paul Rogers actually did for a few years. Uh, you're right. Very, uh, very distinctive, but a just a great, powerful, clear singing voice. And Bad Company had 
some pretty major, major hits worldwide. This was one of the bigger ones, Shooting Star, Feel Like Making Love, the song Bad Company. Uh, you know, Paul Rogers was a big deal in the 1970s and a very charismatic performer. He was. He, you know, he, he was definitely part of that, that uh, you know, older guard of, you know, that would have come out of the 60s, 70s. You know, they, he was very tight with the guys in Van Halen, within Led Zeppelin. Uh, I know later on, uh, Jimmy Page and Paul Rogers formed the firm in the early 80s. And, uh, you know, if, if Jimmy Page is willing to work with you, I mean, I think that says something. And, you know, the fact that, you know, Paul Rogers, as you mentioned, is is the artist that, uh, you know, Brian May and Roger Taylor go to when they try to put uh, Queen back together again. I think that says something as well as the fact that, you know, the, J- Jimmy Page wants to work with you. Well, here I'll throw something else at you as well. Before he even started Bad Company, he was in a band called Free, and yeah. they they were disbanding, and that was right around the time Jim Morrison died from the Doors, and the band the band members left from the Doors. The first phone call they made was to Paul Rogers, okay, to ask him if he wanted to take Jim Morrison's place, and uh, Paul Rogers later said that had it just wasn't the right time, and he passed on it. Right, he said had the circumstances been different. Then he may have thought about becoming a member of the Doors, but you think about it: Queen and the Doors. You're talking, you know, two of the arguably, you know, their all-time great bands, and here they're fighting, you know, at, from one generation to the you know, one decade to the next, they're fighting over Paul Rogers to to join and become a part of them. So while I was aware of the music of Bad Company growing up as a kid, I I really st- knew him first, I think, from the Firm. Okay. I mean, that's kind of when he beca- he came on my radar, and only then they made such a big deal, like the DJs and the VJs, about who this guy was, that I kind of said, "Oh yeah, I kind of remember Bad Company." Because once again, we didn't have they didn't have video, so I didn't have a face to go along with the voice. I just knew who Bad Company was. What 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 I remember about Bad Company, and when I heard this song for the very first time, was on the radio. But we're talking, I think it was being played later seventies, and it was being played in our dad's gas station, okay. the largest tire store in Nesville, PA. <laughs> I, I, I recently was going through a box of stuff, and I found one of his business cards. Oh, did you it, find yeah, it? And it's, it, it, I, I'll pull it I up I wasn't lying, you. folks. Now it says largest tire store in Nesville. <laughs> yeah. But I remember one of the mechanics playing this on the radio. And, uh, it but just, you, you didn't know it was Paul Rogers, though. I didn't know who it was. Well, see, no. that's it. But I, I didn't. It was hard to find things like that out. If you didn't own the album, right. you, you didn't necessarily know the names of artists. You had to work. There, there wasn't the internet. But like you said, you know, when you hear when you watch a music video for the very first time, when you hear a song for the very first time, when I heard Sir Duke for the first time, I didn't know it was Steve, I didn't know who Stevie exactly, Wonder was. Exactly right. But that song always stood out to me, and this song always stood out to me, and I was always, I was always just, I guess probably I was a fan of his voice, and then when you go back and you actually watch things that he does and how he how he controls a crowd and how he sings on stage. It's like this, this guy's a commanding presence mm-hmm. up there. Sure. So. All right. So Paul Rogers, my number 13, my number 12, we won't dwell a whole lot, spend a whole lot of time on because this band's already been covered and it's, it's been covered in just about every Gen X playback episode. <laughs> I think we've done them in the Hooters. That's, <laughs> We're talking about the mighty Van Halen, of course, David Lee Roth. Now, I should preface this by saying, you know, as highly as we think of David Lee Roth, like, why would you have him on number 12? You talk about him in every episode. Um, 
And I think the reason why I put him at number 12 is I was trying to be time-specific. You know, Van Halen did have a short window in the 70s. They it's had two, two, years. two albums, yeah. two years. Uh, you know, they made a big splash, enough to crack, you know, th- this top 15. But I think what we think of Van Halen was to come. And even though they were a big deal in the 70s, and here's this wild man that's, you know, prowling the stage. Uh, I think his better days were ahead of him. And this was just a kind of a, a taste, a sample of what we were going to see in the eight, you know, 1980 and it, with fair warning. And, and then all the albums that come after. Well, you know, they hadn't really crossed over yet. And, and let that go for a second. And the reason is, you know, they were played on rock radio. Right, so if you weren't necessarily a rock fan, you you weren't really aware of Van Halen. They hadn't crossed over to the pop charts. But this song, and this almost got played, and, and I'm glad I didn't play it, but this is the first Van Halen song that I remember hearing. And you've heard me tell the story where I remember walking into Veterans Stadium in Philadelphia, going to a Phillies game, and back then, people would walk around with their radios, not even a boombox, some guy with a one-speaker transistor radio who was probably going to listen to the play-by-play when he got inside. Sure. And so he's listened to WMMR. We're walking up the ramp. I can still picture the guy. He's some stoner-looking guy. He's got these cut-off jeans. Cut-off jeans. He's got flip-flops, a tie-dye shirt, a mustache, and a headband, right? So he's, he is 1978 to the, to the core, and... What's coming out of his box is this song, and he was like bopping along to it. Well, the thing I remember about Van Halen, and and you were pointing it out because next to the vet or across the street from you know across Patterson Avenue from uh, Veteran Stadium was the old JFK Stadium, which was this big, massive, old football field where they used to host the Army Navy game every year. Well, they also, you know, in the 80s would hold concerts. In the oh, yeah. 70s and 80s, they would have these concerts, and they could fit 100,000 people in there. And I remember you were you were the one that pointed out to me, say, hey, look, they sp- somebody spray-painted VH on the side of the, of the, <laughs> of the building. And that, he goes, that, you're like, that stands for Van Halen. And I'm like, okay, okay, whatever. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I didn't realize I was going to come to love the band as much That's as right. I did. Uh, Philadelphia has always been a Van Halen town. All right, so that was my number 12. Like I said, a young David Lee Roth with uh, Van Halen from the 1970s. And this is the same thing. Uh, My number 11, I kind of put them together for that reason, is because these guys had much, much more of a career to come. And one of my favorite singers of all time, of course, I'm talking about the one and only Bruce Springsteen. To me, still one of the best live songs I've ever seen performed uh, with... uh, we're talking about Born to Run. That's just, you know, it's poetry. And this album, you know, the Born to Run album came out in 1975. And songs that, I guess America wasn't quite ready for Bruce Springsteen because when the album first came out, it was so much anticipation and the record sales were such a huge disappointment. Now, this is one of those albums that because it was so good and so well made, 
ended up becoming a very big album based on sales years later. But there's three of my favorite Bruce Springsteen songs ever that are on that. Born to Run, Thunder Road, and 10th Avenue Freeze Out. Just great. Just 10th Avenue Freeze Out. It's such a fun song. Mm-hmm. And it just shows that the, I, I could just imagine hearing them play a song like that in the bar in Jersey where they got their start. And I think one of the things that always impressed me about a guy like Springsteen is he always kind of remained true to himself in terms of you know what kind of songwriter he was what kind of sound he wanted to make. And it was just a very honest uh, earnestness that when he's younger, the stuff is more aggressive, but then as he gets older, he kind of changes tones a little bit. And yeah. I think some of the great songwriters do that right. as they progress in age. You know, we've talked about John Mellencamp, and Billy Joel. I think they all kind of have, you know, they kind of write to their knowledge of life. And, right. and I think it makes them better songwriters. And Springsteen, we're seeing that that young aggression and that ambition in him in Born to Run, and then you know he does come out with in 1978 with uh, Darkness on the Edge of Town with the song Badlands, and it's like you know there's such a desperate tone in that song, but as a live performer, there wasn't a whole lot of song success, chart success for Springsteen in the 70s, and I think he was able to keep his career going because of his live performances. And he also developed this this cult following. Mm-hmm. And, you know, later on when he becomes humongous with the Born in the USA album, there's a little bit of backlash because he, I think, you know, people thought he was a sellout. And I, there, there's always a, a fan base that likes to be able to call an artist their own. And they don't like when they get too big. Right. And he did not get his first top 10 single until I believe it was 1981's Hungry Heart which was a song he wrote for somebody else. He wrote it for the Ramones. Okay. And uh, John Landau, I think his producers told him to keep it and said, this is too good for you to hand over to somebody else. Uh, but I think he, even in his liner notes for his greatest hits, cause I have that, that album in there, he writes, you know, my first top 10 hit at the age of 34 or something yeah. like that. So it took him a long time for him to get the, that was, those record sales. Uh, but the E street band and Springsteen, it had it not been for his ability as a live band, which was the case for many of the groups that we've talked about so far in this episode, it's their live performances that kept the bills paid. And not only that, I think if if you would look at a lot of the artists, especially the ones that you have put on your list, many of them write their own material. And I think that's kind of oftentimes important for allowing a nice steady flow to come in. You know, other artists usually do a pretty good job of picking songs you know we talked about in previous episodes about how madonna has always been pretty good at being able to pick songs and kind of make them her own and that's definitely a skill and you know later on in his career you know johnny cash did that when he worked with rick rubin and and really incorporated some things that other people wrote like with trent reznor and with you know hurt you know hurt you know made that his own but like with springsteen he's always writing his own material and it when he does that i think you kind of you hear his voice. You do, and what he's going through at the time, he's kind of transparent, and in a way, as a as a fan, you know, you like that because you go through things in your life, and just you you're able to. It's not this polished song that's just kind of written, you know, just to be a pop song. And I love those things. You know, I, I have no problems with things that are just written to be poppy songs. But when you get somebody like you know Springsteen just putting. Some of his emotion, emotion and, and personal things, like when he writes Tunnel of Love, when he's go, you know, going through a divorce, mm-hmm. um, 
you know, it's, I think it brings a lot. So yeah, I, I definitely agree. You know, Springsteen has, has always been considered one of the best live artists ever. Right. And I, I have him down here at number 11. And like I said, much like, you know, Rod Stewart, had he, you know, he had much, probably his better performances were to come than what he was in the 1970s. In the 1970s, it was just this great frenetic energy of him and the E Street Band. I don't think he kind of took on sort of that, uh, you know, I throw it that Bono-esque elevation in his career until he started to get a little bit older. And he really, he knew how to throw a concert. He knew how to put on a concert. Sure. Uh, But he was able to become Bruce Springsteen as he is known today as that elevation in his career. So good choice. Number 11 is Bruce Springsteen. That was born to run from 1975. Number 10 uh, was an artist that was already covered by Sean, but it's worth bringing up again. One of the greatest artists of all time. But if this ever changing world in which we live in, still performs to this day at the age of 80 and sounds just as good. Amazingly. And I really, and I chose this song because, you know, when you think about a lot of the hit songs that Paul McCartney had in the 1970s, they have a softer tone to them. There's not a whole lot of edge, and I think this might have been his edgiest song that he did in the entire decade. Of course, he did this for the James Bond movie, right? Um, but you you kind of go down the list of what he is most known for. You know, Maybe I'm amazed. My love. Uh, he did Band on the Run and Jet. Uh, listen to my, to listen to what the man said with a little luck. I mean, those are, the Wings songs kind of had a softer edge to them. Yeah, and but this was certainly an exception because this was covered by Guns and Roses, and they and, still perform it live. And it's you know it's not that much different than this version. No. And this is uh, you know. And, and the other thing is is even my favorite Wings song isn't even on the list, which is coming up because it was 1980. Right. Yeah. Uh, there's a whole story behind that one too. As to uh, McCartney was was very upset because he wanted to release another version that didn't have the backup band in it because at that point he was pretty much done with Wings. So, but because that version was so popular, the concert version or the video, the Glasgow, version? yeah, the, it was yeah. it was done live in Glasgow is what it was called. Because then they came out with it the, where they shot a video. Yes, and it kind of had like that that funny voice. Yes, and he and he was. That was kind of at the record company's insistence, and he was not a happy camper about it. So, Well, when I was a little kid, I liked it. Oh, I love that song. So, Went to number one. Yeah. All right. So number 10 was Sir Paul McCartney and Live and Let Die. Uh, number 10 on our 70 top performers of the 1970s. Number nine, another artist that was already covered. Uh, you know, not a real surprise here, but a different song. But this one is really a cool song to me, and this is Blondie and Debbie Harry. I'm gonna win you. I'm gonna get you, get you, get you. 
Sean, could you make the argument that Blondie was the one punk group to kind of break through in American on the American charts and have come up with enough of a sound that hit the masses and became a popular seller? Uh, yeah, I, I could. I, I probably would agree with you with that because when you listen to this song, it's it's definitely, I would it's definitely not punk. It has a new wave sound to it, and it's it's very much leading into the '80s. Sure, but this this you can when you hear this song, you can easily see them performing this at a New York bar, like where they started. Sure, it's it's got a little bit of an edge to it. It's got attitude. Yeah, it's it's got edge, and I think. You know her her lyrics are really spot on because, uh, you know she's in the the song is about giving attitude and she's certainly giving attitude when she's singing and I think it's a great portrayal of this of this lyric and you know and here's another example of kind of like a duo, you know we we talked about the the Dave and Eddie and the uh, you know the Jimmy Page and the uh, the Robert Plants and um. And in our, our ladies at rock, we talked about you know Pat Benatar and her husband Neil Gerardo kind of had that that chemistry. Well, you know Blondie was was basically Chris Stein and Debbie Harry, and you know we haven't talked about Chris. That kind of edgy sound that's his contribution to it. Yeah, he was very much a, a part of the musical content, of coming up with with the uh, you know the chords and the progressions and the, and the you know the songwriting. So the two work big, well together. It's a big part it's, of it. It's, yeah. it's like you said. Would would Debbie would Blondie have been anything without Debbie Harry? No, they wouldn't have. But once again, Debbie, without having that songwriting partner, you know, somebody that's given really pop grooves. I mean, it it gets on the radio because there's these hooks to mm-hmm. it, and it's you know, punk rock was. I think when people look back at history, people think punk rock was bigger than what it was. Everybody wants to have the credibility of saying that they were into punk rock. I didn't know anybody that was into punk rock. No, not where we grew up. Not I mean, you all. might say you liked it, but you didn't really. You, I mean, you would maybe say, "Oh, I like a Ramon song." I wouldn't be sedated. That's about all we know. <laughs> and and I think at times, you know, punk rock was kind of forced upon us. I think critically. Yeah. You know, sometimes the writers at Rolling Stone wanted yeah. us to believe that punk rock was the way to go because it was real. And, and really, what was it? They were just because they were being critical of somebody or something. Like the Sex Pistols, they they wrote songs against the Queen of England, yeah. And that was supposed to be, oh, that's groundbreaking. That's that's trendsetting. I mean, we have listeners in England. You know, what did you folks think about it back then? Were you fans of punk rock? Now, was that maybe. would you consider the Clash punk rock? Because I I love the Clash. The Clash, I, think, I, I I didn't consider the Clash punk rock. I mean, I mean they, maybe they would have, but I mean they had too much pop sensibility about themselves. They, they may have been at one time, but what we heard on the radio, I didn't classify. By the time as punk it got rock. to us, I don't think it, it it definitely wasn't wasn't punk. Yeah. All right, so that was my number nine, which was Debbie Harry, Debbie Harry from the band Blondie, and that was one way or another. Uh, my number eight was one that Sean already covered. And I think this is the only song that overlaps in, in our, uh, in our coverage. So this was the very first song that I ever heard on the radio or that I remember hearing on the radio. My, uh, first ever favorite song. Of course, this is Stevie wonder and Sir Duke and Stevie wonder. We'll let this go in a little bit. Sing, dance, and clap their hands 
I just don't know if anybody can listen to this song and be in a bad mood or stay in a bad mood with listening to this Stevie Wonder song. Just such a good vibe. And when I thought about Stevie Wonder, Sean, what I wanted to, to ask you was think about artists that were very popular when they're of an extremely young age. And Stevie Wonder came onto the scene when he's about 12 years old. Little Stevie Wonder. Little Stevie Wonder in, in the early 60s. I think it was 1962 at Fingertips. Uh, obviously, Michael Jackson comes to mind. But over the years, I mean, there have been some kid performers that were, you know, popular for a minute. But there's two guys right there, and Stevie Wonder made that transition from kid singer to adult singer and in the 1970s came out with about three or four albums that were as quality as anything else that was put out in the decade yeah usually when you have kids singers you end up with performers like crisscross that's who i was you know they come up with one song uh you know and that's all you hear from them uh you know you go back to the early 80s musical youth with past the (laughs) dutchy on the left hand side (laughs) yeah the uh uh, but for the most part, they, they don't tend to have big careers. But Michael Jackson and, and Stevie Wonder had two of the biggest careers in music history. Yeah. Uh, so that he was uh, my number eight choice. We're really starting to get into, I think, some of the royalty of... You really... You know, when Sean did his list in the, in the first... In part one, he said, I'm not going to categorize... I'm not going to number these because they're all good. And I agree with that because to try and narrow down from even from 10 to 1, was so hard and so subjective. And I'm not sitting here saying that this is the quintessential top list. This is my top list. Obviously, for whoever's listening, and Sean had had different views on who he thought were the best performers. It's so hard. I mean, you really can't necessarily rank them. Uh, but I just think you can look, listen to these names and, and think, yeah, these, these, are some, these are some big names. So let's go to number seven. Arguably my favorite singer of all time. You hear that Liberty DeVito banging on the drums in the background. Um, Billy Joel in the early 70s was known as a balladeer. You know, obviously, piano man, Captain Jack. So he his sound evolved as the decade wore on. And he told a great story about that. And he said, you know, when Piano Man, when I did Piano Man and it was started to become successful, you know, I was performing in restaurants i was performing in small bars now with the success of the stranger which is before this one the big shot came off of 52nd street now he he has the huge success of the stranger which has some very intimate songs in it like scenes from an italian restaurant 
Um, he said, the more successful we got, we started playing bigger rooms, auditoriums, arenas, even some stadiums. So he said, I needed, you know, as a band, we're like, how can we fill this room? So when you're listening to a song like Big Shot, now he's at the point where, okay, I'm playing an arena. Mm-hmm. How can I perform to this arena of people? I'm not going to sit down quietly behind a piano and play piano. And obviously, Piano Man became one of his signature songs. Right. But he said the reason that the sound became bigger and Glass Houses came out in 1980, but at that point with this still rock and roll to me, you can hear that sound get louder and a little bit more aggressive with each album. Yeah, no, that, that's a good point because as you start to play the arenas and some stadiums later on, I mean, when we saw him, he was playing in a stadium. Um, you, you do need those that are going to like you know get the people out of their seats and and, and get them moving. The um, you know Billy Joel is somebody that you know I, I I think I say this like every artist you put out there that didn't, wasn't on my list. I'm like I, I consider Billy Joel, and I, uh, I I guess just because for me I. Uh, Glass Houses was really when I started to get into Billy Joel. And I, so other than that, my knowledge of Billy Joel prior to Glass Houses, the album Glass Houses, was just what was played on the radio. Yeah. And I guess that's probably why you and I kind of get a slightly different version of, because mine's, yours is a little bit more time, uh, you know, to the time of when it came out. Right. You know, just being just that, that few years, for me, it's a little bit more reflective. I can kind of go back and think about it. And some of these were, like I said, Sir Duke was the first song I remember hearing on right. the radio. Other than that, I mean, I'm not going to put Nick Gilder, Hot Child in the City. Oh, that's a good song. <laughs> I mean, but that, See, I, I mean, would that, put that song out the, there. But that, that's, uh, you know, my my memories, first memories of listening to the radio consistently, you know, I'm probably about eight years old. So we're like 1979. The decade's over. Yeah. You know, we're at the end of the decade. So there's not a whole lot. I kind of have to go back and say, okay, well, I know these guys were big. I know this album was big. As I go, as I have listened to, you know, thousands and thousands of seventy songs since, I can say that I can kind of like come up with a formula as to how I think that these these rankings should be. Right, and that's kind of interesting, you know, for those of you who are listening that that we Scott and I have those two different approaches. So he, Scott is right. I mean, we didn't talk about this, but you you have figured it out exactly. I went with the soundtrack. You know, what was playing in the background of my life. So everything that was on my list were songs that I liked at the time. Mm-hmm. There's not one song on there that I disliked and then went back and said, you know what? I've grown to appreciate that song. Yeah. And um, which really, and the reason I, I kind of brought this whole conversation in before I played number six is exactly for that reason. Uh, this particular singer was dead before I really even started to follow music. But as I circled back as an adult and heard the songs played over and over and over again and also go back and realize how important this particular singer was when he was alive, that's why he comes in at number six.
I'm talking about Ronnie Van Zamp from the band Leonard Skinner. And whenever anybody who's ever been to, you know, Gen Xers will tell you, if you ever are going to a performance and the singer says, hey, does anybody have any requests? What's usually the one that always gets thrown out there? Uh, you got to play Freebird. Freebird. Yep. Play Freebird. Uh, Freebird, of course, is Ronnie Van Zant and Leonard Skinner, which came off their debut album, pronounced Leonard Skinner. These guys were a big deal in the 1970s. And unfortunately, when Ronnie Van Zant died in a plane crash in 1977, kind of took the band with him. Now, Leonard Skinner has gone on. Um, you know, the Van Zants have kept that band alive. Although, just recently, within the last couple of days, I think the, the final uh, original member just passed away, the guitarist. Yeah, I, Gary Rossington. Yeah, he, he just passed away. So, um, so Leonard Skinner, the band, has been going, but really the heart and soul at the time was Ronnie Van Zant, and they were such a big deal when he died. And you go back and, and you kind of read the stories surrounding what the reaction was to his death, and it, it was a major, major loss to music at the time. It was, and it, it, you're right. This this was a, a big a, a band that was a big deal. Now... I guess, you know, because we were young and I, I was aware of Leonard Skinner, I, I guess I wonder if just because of the plane crash that, you know, they became a bigger deal. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Do you think it's because people talked them up when that we, you know, we heard that like it was 1977, you know, I was aware of them, but I was really aware of them after the plane crash. The thing I was, um, that I was, as far as going back and looking at the band Leonard Skinner is they were really one of the first outdoor venue uh, rock bands of the 1970s that hailed from the United States. Okay. So you're talking probably the biggest rock acts of the 70s were probably Queen, uh, Led Zeppelin, mm-hmm. the Rolling Stones. These are these are these are European British acts. Right. And Leonard Skinner had a very uniquely American sound. It was that Southern rock. Oh yeah. And they were they were kind of America's answer to rock and roll at the time and they really did usher in sort of that southern rock uh you know sensibility that uh was very big on the on the charts and on the radio in the 1970s yeah yeah no they um you know they definitely were huge and you know ronnie van zant he's he's definitely um you know you'll see many documentaries talking about ronnie van zant and you know just kind of how he was he was the force behind Leonard Skinner. You know, they uh, you know, he was he was the primary uh, lyricist. I mean, he was you know, a lot of guys contributed to the songwriting, but you know, he was the main guy. It was his band and he decided what uh, was going to be played, how it was going to be played, you know, who who was in the band. It, it was all about Ronnie. And just a little side note about Ronnie Van Zant, if you ever watch any any concert footage of him performing, no matter what, no matter where, uh, look at his feet. I know he's barefoot because he doesn't have shoes on. Right. He, he always performed barefoot, which is amazing because I mean he, he's roughly about my height. You know, he's not very tall. Right. You know, he's he's about you know five 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 six five four five six right in that range. And you know, he's a, most rock stars are going to do what Prince does and and have heels on to to elevate you and make you look like you're taller. No, no, Ronnie Van Zant. It was true, true to the height. He wanted to be able to feel the music at at his feet. That, and not not ashamed to go out there. And I think there was a, there was a time where he tripped on something um, when he was wearing shoes okay. way back when before they became a known band. And 
and he took the shoes off and performed that way, and he liked it, and he just that kind of became a signature on stage uh, mark. So, uh, Ronnie Van Zant and Leonard Skinner comes in at number six. Number five is somebody that we've already talked about before, and you know Sean picked a song from earlier in the decade, and I went a little bit later in the decade. Of course, I'm talking about Michael Jackson, and this is with the Jacksons, Shake Your Body Down to the Ground. And when you go back and listen to this song, Sean, it's a shame that this kind of gets lumped in with the disco sound, because this is not a disco, this is a pure funk. This is a funk song. When you started playing it, I I felt like strapping on a pair of roller skates. You know, this wasn't a disco song, this was something that we would hear at, at Overlook Roller Skating Rink. Yeah, the Jacksons were so important to just that transition from Motown from the beginning of the decade to the end of the decade in terms of music. And it's so hard for, and we've talked about this before, it's so hard for artists to kind of crest that wave when the music starts to change, you know? Right. It's like, how does a band go from heavy metal to grunge and do it successfully? How does a band stay relevant? And... So when you're talking about the 70s, that same question had to be answered for some of these groups who were like a Motown. Like how does, how do the Jackson 5 or as the Jacksons as they're known in this song, how do they get from that really um, bubblegum pop mm-hmm. from earlier in their career to becoming a, a grown up mature band and do it successfully? And not many bands are able to do that. They were one of them. Yeah, I, when, when Michael Jackson eventually comes out with the Thriller album in 83, and it becomes the biggest album of all time, it wasn't a surprise to me, and I, I doubt it was a surprise to you, he wasn't this unknown artist that came out of nowhere. I mean, Not at all. He was, he was, even then, a part of the pop culture. You know, the like his Off the Wall album was incredibly popular. I think Off the Wall didn't win like four Grammys. It, 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 it was, I mean... It, when Thriller came out, it's like, okay, here's just the next Michael Jackson album. And Off the Wall Kate did come out in 1979. I was going to mention that as well because that had, I think, four or five top ten hits on it in its own right. So Michael Jackson was able to really make that successful transition from child singer to adult singer, like we said about Stevie Wonder. Yeah, truly amazing. I mean, that's... I think, you know, sometimes people go back and they'll rewrite history and they'll say certain people were greater than what they were. I, I think... Sometimes we might not even be talking high enough about Michael Jackson to say how big of a deal he was, how important he was to the pop culture. And all you have to do is think about when if you watch anything that the Jacksons did in the 1970s, it, they had their own variety show too for a they little did. bit of time. Uh, you're mesmerized by Michael Jackson. Now, the rest of the Jackson brothers, as talented as they may be, and Jermaine ended up going on to have a very successful R&B career. But make no mistake about it, the the Jacksons were Michael, mm-hmm. and, and and their trajectory had to do with Michael Jackson, and you know, when you watch them perform, you weren't watching Jackie, you weren't watching Marlon, maybe Tito because he's holding a guitar, <laughs> yeah, 
but you're you're pretty much fixated on on Michael because he was that charismatic on stage. Right. Yeah. No. It's. Uh, I, I would have been disappointed had you not had Michael Jackson uh, on the list. Number five was Michael Jackson. Very easily could have been number one. Any yeah. one of these really uh, could have been number one. So my number four is again somebody that I had to go kind of circle back to and learn about how big he was at that time. Sean had already played one of his songs. Of course, we'll talk about Robert Plant and Led Zeppelin. So you're not doing any guitar players? It's just the lead singers? I'm just doing lead singers. Okay. Yeah. Because, you know, Jimmy Page is cooler than Robert Plant. But not, not, not that you're not cool, Robert, if you're one of our <laughs> listeners. I, I, as I said in the last uh, episode, I really like your solo work. People respected and appreciated how good Jimmy Page was. The women swooned after Robert Plant. Wouldn't that be awesome if Robert Plant was one of our listeners? Robert Plant, <laughs> I think in the 70s, and this is, this is such a 70s, um, they did a survey, all right? Robert Plant was voted best chest in rock and roll. Okay. I can only imagine who else was on that list. <laughs> Um, but I, he won the, the best chest for, okay. for rock music. Um, good for him. Way to go, Robert. All right. Didn't well, know that was a thing. Hopefully you're still hitting the gym years later. But he's my number four. And again, um, my first real memory of Led Zeppelin is they on Prism, they showed the concert movie that Led Zeppelin did. I think it was came out in 1976. Yeah, something like it that. It might have been from their... Uh, the song remains the same. Yeah, that's uh, that was the yeah. that was the movie. Yeah, I remember watching that and I'm thinking to myself, okay, I recognize a lot of these songs, uh, and I just watched how the crowd reacted to him, and the the crowd was. I mean, it was it was a big deal. He was a big yeah. deal. So that was my number four, Robert Plant, and that song, of course, is Black Dog, with Jimmy Page in the background. So that takes us to our top three. My number three is uh, not going to be a surprise to anybody. Sean actually had this particular lead singer on his list as well. And I'm glad that, you know, that we picked different songs because this one came out in the early 70s and is just as identifiable as Beast of Burden. voice in the background I think they actually blend their voices really well they do and like I said Mick Jagger's 80 years old and and can sing this song just like he did 50 years ago which it just it just goes to show uh, you know the, the lasting power of a group like Mick Jagger but he's not on my list because of what he's what he's done past the 70s he's on my list because of what he did in the 70s and I could argue, you could argue and say, because in the early 70s that the Rolling Stones were going through some personnel changes, you know, um, 
What was it? Brian Jones left yeah. the band. Mick Taylor died. No, uh, it was the opposite. Was it? Or Brian Jones died and Mick, oh, okay. Mick Taylor left the Mick band. Mick Taylor left the band. Mick yeah. Taylor was first and then Brian Jones. Oh, Brian Jones was the original. Okay. He was the founder of the of the Stones. And so, yeah, they they kind of were struggling there for a little bit. Now, Sticky Fingers comes out in 71 and is a huge success, but then, uh, you know, Mick Taylor kind of fizzles out. They have to bring Ronnie Wood in. So they're, they're kind of going through a, a personnel change besides... You know, Jagger, Richards, Charlie Watts, and um, what's his name, Bill uh, Bill Wyman. Bill Wyman. Uh, so they're they're sort of in that transition before they go back in in '78 and come out with Beast of Burden. So I think just their live performances again, like some of the other groups that were struggling to make a name for themselves because the Stones had that name. That's kind of what kept them in relevance until they could find make some more material that put them back on radio play. Yeah, I mean, you know, Mick Jagger is going to come up in anybody's top ten list, anybody's top five list of the all-time greatest singers, rock singers ever. Uh, you know, he yeah. and and you know some of their biggest songs, of course, were in the '60s. You know, as I said during uh, our previous episode, that uh, you know there was always the debate. You know, who who are you, a Beatles fan or are you a Rolling Stones fan? And it's kind of amazing how I don't think anybody would have predicted back in the mid-late 60s, that the Stones would still be going. Yeah. yeah. Because Keith and Mick always fought. Yes, they did. and But they always they always had that business arrangement, and they understood each other, and they knew how to keep their distance. Yeah. And that's what bands that have lasting power, I guess that's what you have to do over time. I mean, you'll always be forever connected. Uh, you know, it's kind of a brotherhood. But brothers don't always get along. I mean, you and I fought over the yeah. years. It just happens, you know, but... Uh, it's it's something that they've kind of figured out that space and when they can work together and when they have to basically stay apart. Maybe the secret ingredient was Ronnie Wood because Ronnie Wood was Keith's friend. He was. And so as they're searching for another member and Keith and Mick, you know, don't necessarily get along. Now Mick, or now Keith has his buddy with him, you know, his really close friend. And now regardless of what's going on, they can hang out together. They yeah. can travel together and it, they on stage... Keith has somebody to stand next to. Yeah. I mean, you watch them. It Keith and Ronnie are together out, out there, even to this day. And there's also a great story about the time when Charlie Watts punched out Mick Jagger. I believe that happened in the 70s. Okay. So Mick is drunk, and they are at a hotel, and, he, and Charlie Watts is in bed because he's like the most serious member of the band. Right. And that he, uh, the phone rings, and... And Mick's on the phone and he's drunk and he's like, I want my, I want my drummer to come downstairs. <laughs> so Charlie hangs up the phone. He gets dressed, goes downstairs. And as he's walking down the stairs, Mick's down there at the bottom of the steps and Charlie punches him and knocks him to the ground. And Charlie goes, don't you ever call me your drummer ever again. He goes, you're my lead singer. And he turned around and went back, <laughs> back up to his room. Yeah. So that's a good Charlie Watts story. Yeah. You know, rest in peace, Charlie. Uh, so that was my number three, Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones. That was Brown Sugar from 1971. My number two very easily could be number one, uh, but a, a performer like no other. And this is another one that Sean had covered in his favorite list. Just a just the number of hit songs that he came out with in the 1970s really does kind of blow your mind.
Let me just run down the number of top 10 songs that he released in a two-year period in 1972 and 1973. Tiny Dancer, Rocket Man, Honky Cat, Crocodile Rock, Daniel, Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting. That was in two years. Okay. Uh, which meant that he was probably had a song on at just about every week of that two-year period. And not only that, but he also has songs like Don't Go Breaking My Heart, mm-hmm. you know, songs that come out towards the end of the decade. Uh, and as Sean had said before, a performer like no other. It's funny that there's two guys in my top seven that are piano players. Right. You Like, who would think that piano players can become great performers? But I think... They might have worked a little extra hard because they were piano players and they knew they had to come up with some type of a stage presence to entertain a crowd, especially a large crowd. Although, you know, you, you go back to the early days of rock music, uh, you know, Jerry Lee Lewis. That's a good point. You know, you know he was a piano yeah. player. Yeah, um, you're right. You know, like Fats Domino was a piano player. Um, uh, a little Richard, yeah, piano player. So there was a way that they could do it. And in a way, sometimes, the way those guys would do it, and Elton John as well, you're kind of calm because you're, you're sitting at the bench, you're playing the piano, and then if you get up really fast and kick the bench back, well, that really adds emphasis to what you're doing. And I circle back to the story I told about Billy Joel, how he said this became more popular and he started playing these bigger venues that he needed to make a bigger sound to you know, perform to these crowds. And you kind of see that a little bit in Elton John as well because your song comes out in 1970, very intimate song beautiful song and then tiny dancer rocket man but you kind of see there's a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more uh even step into christmas which is one of my favorite christmas songs that that he did came out in 1973 uh you know even that's you're starting to see just a little bit more of of the band interaction so he can sort of play to these bigger bigger uh, stadiums and, and venues. And that's all the mark, I think, of the artists that own our, both of our lists is as the stadiums get bigger, there's a skill. And it's a skill that not everybody can take from the clubs to be able to say, all right, I'm in a tiny club. I'm, I'm a foot away from somebody. All right, that takes a certain skill set to be able to, to handle that. But when you go to a stadium, how do you make the person in the back of a stadium that you know, some working class guy that, you know, paid, you know, a hundred bucks, a couple hundred bucks, and he's in the very back of, of Lincoln Financial Field and you can barely see the stage. How do you make him feel part of the concert? There's some artists can, that can do it. Sure. Uh, just, just a quick question to throw out. It just popped into my head. Why Elton John, for all of his success in the 1970s, was not necessarily received well by critics. You know, he didn't win a lot of Grammys in the 70s. Did he get it? You know, did he get his proper due? Did they think he was more of a sellout because the, he had so many songs on the charts? I mean, why do you think? Why do you think it took, uh, you know, critics so long to warm up to him? Because, you know, you look back on his songs now in the seventies, and everybody loves him. At the time when these albums came out, you know, as I was doing some research on this, didn't necessarily get the best reviews at the time that they were coming out. But yeah, then you know you go back and you say, "Oh, these these are you know some of the best albums ever made." Do you think it's because they were just too poppy? I mean, we you know before we went on air, you know we we were having a discussion about you know people that worked with Nile Rodgers that kind of bash Nile Rodgers today because he made some of their biggest hits 
which were super poppy. And he, they said they became commercial sellouts. And I, you know, I think it's easy in retrospect after you've made the money to look back and, you know, maybe you say you don't like those things. You and I are different and, and we've always been that way where we are unabashedly fans of pop mm-hmm. and we don't really care what people think. So right. if, if someone's, you know, some, you know, tough guy's going to give us a hard time for like an Elton Jeremy, like they go, we don't care. No, I, I don't because they're, they're, at the end of the day, uh, there's more there's there's more people that will agree with us and disagree with us. But, I think. but there's always that group of especially music writers and you know people that might vote for Grammys, you know, and, and various awards that are going to look down on disdain. You know, we had the discussion about punk music. Mm-hmm. You know, the people that would have said, "Oh no, well it doesn't match." Well, Elton John he writes pop songs. What you want to do is you you want to listen to Black Flag. You know, or something that's like completely off the radar that no one likes. There may there may be somebody listening to this podcast, and again, er, you know, everybody's opinion is their opinion. But the fact that I would have Debbie Harry number nine and Elton John number two, the, I'm sure there's probably somebody listening to this that that thinks I've you know lost every brain. Well, here I lost it already. Yeah. That I you know I've lost every you know brain cell in my head. That. How could how could you pick you know Debbie Harry's like cutting edge? I don't think Elton John was ever considered cutting edge. Maybe he suffered a little bit from Phil Collins' disease because he was on the charts all the well, time. That's a good point, and and also you know you can't really talk about El- Elton John without his partnership with Bernie Taupin, mm-hmm. right? So you know you know Bernie wrote the lyrics to everything, and, and Elton wrote the music. They had a they had a formula, and they were incredibly well written. You know, very professionally written. They they had no edge to them. Well, you know that's a good point because they their start in music was writing songs for other people. Yeah, they had to know how to make a song, so they just decided to keep their material and do it for themselves, much like Neil Diamond did. And Neil Diamond had you know a, a huge catalog of hit songs as well. So I mean, there's there's something to be said about that, right? I that would be my guess. It's just the fact it was too popular, and anything that's too popular, liked by the masses, there's got to be something wrong with it. Okay, yeah, all right. So that brings us to to my number one. Uh, bef- but before we get that, I am going to go over and do some honorable mentions. So these are some that I remember, but I didn't put them on on the list. Just because I think that some of these other ones were a little bit more, I would say, charismatic, a little bit more uh, in terms of being a live performer. This is where I sort of started to separate myself. It's like if I had to watch somebody on stage, like, you know, am I watching, am I keeping my focus on this one individual person? So I'm going to start out with my first honorable mention and a a big band, particularly when they came out in the 1970s. I remember these guys when they came out, and Absolutely. as a little kid, I liked them a lot. Boy, they were so close to making the list, on my list. Of course, this is Lou Graham, and the band is Foreigner. And I'm so much more a fan of 70s Foreigner than 80s Foreigner. I, w- I would agree with that. The now, now, Lou Graham, you could argue that either he or Paul Rogers has the best voice in rock from that era. There's three names that, that come to mind. Paul Rogers, Lou Graham, and Steve Perry. 
Yes, and, and I almost put a Journey song on there. And the reason why Steve Perry and Journey didn't make the list and why Lou Graham and Farner did not make my list was I didn't know that they were quite the showman. Correct. That's the only reason. If it was strictly by listening to an album, uh, it, he Lou Graham easily would have been on my list. Yeah, and and that's why that's why I said that when I went to my honorable mention is when when I'm watching the band, who am I paying attention to? And as great a voice as Lou Graham has, there's other elements to the. I'm band watching Mick I, Jones, I, the guitarist. I, you yeah, know, I might, I and mean, that's where my eyes drawn because I like guitar players. I mean, yeah. I, you know, obviously people probably picked up, and I tend to favor the guitar players. So that's my one honorable mention. My second honorable mention is somebody that has been mentioned in our Ladies the Rock. Yeah. And another just amazing voice when when you're talking one of the greatest female rock singers of all time. And that is Ann Wilson of Heart. And a woman that could sing just about any type of song. She could wail and scream and sing the best rock and roll. She could sing a soft ballad. And she could do it equally as well. Just one of the best voices ever in rock history. Ever. So why is Ann not on the list? Why is she only an honorable mention? Because of her stage presence. Okay. I, I went back and actually watched. Yeah. And she's she does move around, but she's not like she does not have the charisma that a Debbie Harry does. Right. I mean Debbie Harry just oozes look at me. Ann Wilson did not necessarily have that. Ann had a voice that was ten times better than Debbie Harry's. Sure. But in terms of uh, you know, Debbie Harry had that Madonna quality to her. You know, they're they're, they're decent singers and but they just had an it factor to them. Okay. Uh, that's fair. All right. So that was my other honorable mention. So this this other one, and I'm kind of glad that Sean didn't mention this guy's name because that way I could kind of bring this one out. This song was actually played in the uh, movie Days to Confuse. That's what I was thinking of. And you know, Alice Cooper almost made my top 15 for no other reason. Alice Cooper, you could argue and say, in rock music history, made the most of a career with the least amount of ability. And I don't mean that as, as, a, um, as a criticism. Here's a guy who, all right, let's go, let's check off the box. Okay. Looks? Uh, not the best looking guy voice i don't care for his voice that much songwriting eh, yeah okay so why do we remember alice cooper like we do because he's a showman exactly and and he's a good guy i mean he is i i, I listen to his radio show a few minutes like at, at night if i'm like cleaning my contact lenses i'll i'll pop his show on i really like his storytelling did you ever hear him tell the story about how he became alice cooper i, I can't say that okay I he he said 
just the exact reasons that I just asked you the, the same questions. He goes, I was ugly. <laughs> you know, I, I was not a good looking guy. I did not have a great voice. I loved rock and roll music, but I knew my limitations. Right. And he said, I had to come up with a way to get myself out there and have people remember me for being a performer. Right. So he came up with this whole stage presence, this whole Alice Cooper character. And hey, you know, we criticize people for not using their brains, and Alice that's Cooper a is a guy. very smart guy. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why he makes my honorable mention list, because in my opinion, he got the most out of the least. No, I, I, I would agree with, with that. You know, it, it's interesting. Uh, out of every artist you have mentioned, other than Meatloaf, who just slipped my mind, everyone was on my 40, big, <laughs> my big 40 that had I had to start cutting people. Okay. All right, so my other honorable mention is is a, is a name we, we mentioned before. It's one of the, the best songs ever. For a male lead singer, and this is Steve Perry with Journey. Um... You could probably put him in the top three in terms of just the ability to belt out a song. Just an incredible vocal range. Yeah. Great voice. It's a shame he doesn't perform much anymore. Yeah. And the reason he kind of goes to my honorable mention is watching him, if you watch any of the live performances that Journey did, you know, back in the day. Mm Mm-hmm. There's not a whole... The band itself, it's not just Steve Perry. There's not a whole lot of entertainment factor from the from the band. Right. They're... They're great musicians. They're they're the, of the... Okay, we're going to go up there and we're going to play our instruments. We're going to play them. You know, play them as best we can and you're going to enjoy the song. Right. But there's no interaction with the crowd. There's It's just them there and the crowd behind them. Yeah. And that's why it kind of slipped to my honorable mention. But make no mistake, I mean, Journey's one of the one of the best bands of our era. Oh yeah, yeah. No, it's it. I, I would agree with that. And you know, and that's another band where you would have the the guitar player Neil Sean, who Steve Perry, Neil Sean definitely could play off each other. Um, you know, they and you threw Jonathan Cain into the mix as far mm-hmm. as at least in the eighties. The songwriting because Jonathan Cain didn't come till till later. Right. Uh, you know, it was Greg Rowley in they were, the, they were the bulk of the seventies. They were very fortunate to be able to replace a main songwriter and Greg Rowley with yeah. Jonathan Cain, who was equally as good. Right. So no, that's that is a, a fabulous choice and a fabulous song. All right. So my other my next honorable mention is somebody who when he's not a one hit wonder, but he certainly is I guess you consider him a one album wonder. And this would this album was a big deal. This is Peter Frampton. Frampton comes alive. And Peter Frampton, for a shining moment, 
was the most popular artist in the world when this album comes out. First time I ever heard this uh, songs off this album. In fact, probably the first time I ever heard this song was at the jukebox at the Papadinas. <laughs> <laughs> this was for a summer when, Absolutely. when Frampton Comes Alive comes out. There's a summer where if you would go in to Papadinas and wait for your pizza, you were going to hear this before your pizza was ready. You know what's funny is it actually hit, it was mentioned on a very popular TV show, Three's Company. And it just always stood out to me because uh, Chrissy, who's uh, you know one of the three roommates on the show Three's Company, she's about ready to go out on a date with somebody, and he's kind of like the square. I guess the date was set up by her, her parents, who the father's her father's a pastor. So uh, Chrissy Snow is about ready to go out on a date with this guy, and she goes, "Hey, have you heard the new Peter Frampton album?" And the guy had no idea who Peter Frampton was. And it was just like, oh, who, who does not, not heard Peter Frampton? Who the heck doesn't know who Peter Frampton is? So that just, for some reason, that always stood out in my mind. But I, yesterday, uh, as I was trying to narrow down my list, I listened to Frampton Comes Alive. Okay. So it, it did not quite make it just because I only remembered hearing about two songs on the radio, two, three songs on the radio okay. at the time. But right. it definitely, one of the, the biggest albums of that time, of that era. Okay, so that was my uh, two more honorable mention yet. So that was Peter Frampton showed me the way. My next honorable mention is, again, probably somebody would sit there who's listening to this podcast would say, you're crazy. He should be at, in your top two uh, and very well could be. But what he was about early in his career, I, I just did not get. I do like this song. Of course, it's one of one of the favorite movies that we've ever watched from the 1980s, which is 16 Candles. There's a great story behind the making of the song. And this is David Bowie, Young Americans. Had I gotten Ziggy Stardust, had yeah. I understood what Ziggy Stardust was all about? Do, do you understand it now? No. Oh, okay, because I, I, I don't understand I, it. I don't. Uh, had had I been able to understand what... You can't deny that he was one of the most well-known performers of the early 70s. Yeah, sure. I just didn't get it. Yeah. And, you know, I the, the conceptual stuff, the Peter Gabriel Genesis, that... It's just not something that, that I think you or I no. really showed any interest in. So I, my apologies to any of those listeners out there that are reeling right now. Well, yeah. Cause but I can it, appreciate David Bowie was a great artist. Yeah, cause, you know, and Scott and I, you know, I, I think we're, we're consistent. We're, we're not going to be like those, those rock critics that we talked about that, you know, wanted to put down what you were into, right? And just like, I don't want to put down punk if that's what you liked sure. and you thought punk was great. It's just that it didn't speak to the, you know, that those genres didn't speak to us. That doesn't mean that they didn't influence people that we ended up liking later on. Sure. And so David Bowie, I think, you know, you and I both really enjoyed David Bowie when we get to the 80s and he comes up with Let's Dance. Uh, you know, there were definitely songs of his, you know, throwing throughout the 70s. I like the song Fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, there was... Fame. Fame, yeah. There, there, there were songs that you would hear occasionally on, on rock radio. Yeah. You, we, we would not hear it on our top 40 radio stations around right. here. Yeah, and that I think that 
for us growing up, I think that's an important thing to point out is there just wasn't a whole lot of radio stations to choose from. And as we started off the show with, you were kind of limited as far as how you were able to hear uh, groups and artists. You know, there wasn't a whole lot of, you know, accessibility on television. You, you know, you had to own their albums, especially like Led Zeppelin. We never heard Led Zeppelin no. in, uh, uh, you know, in Lancaster, PA, unless it was one o'clock in the morning where the DJ was able to play the full side of Dark Side of the Moon or Led Zeppelin 4. Right. You would hear it if you had a friend who had an older sibling mm-hmm. who was into it. Right. That's the only way you got exposed to that, you know, that hard rock type of music. I mean, that's the only way I even heard about, you know, the Bon Scott ACDC stuff around 1975-76. Sure. All right. So my last honorable mention that I'm going to play is they they jumped onto the scene and particularly the uh, the lead singer. You go uh, yeah. in in probably 3 years from the time this album comes out. Sting is probably one of the best performers in the world of his time. But they are just starting out and it's, you know, 1978 and this is Roxanne. Well, yeah. Roxanne. It, it just it just there weren't enough years in the decade yet for me to put them on the list. Yeah. So it was, you, as it, we found out it was a lot harder to get on the list than we thought, you know? Yeah. Oh, with my original list had, I mean, when I was just writing, just randomly writing names down, the police were one of the first 10, 12 bands I wrote down. And then I kept thinking it through and thinking more and more. But again, the sound that the police brought out there, they were coming out of the punk scene and they were getting kind of dissed by the punk critics because they were good musicians. Because they were extremely good musicians. Yeah. I think there's a little bit of jealousy there. And especially when record companies started to see the ability. Uh, you know, Andy Summers was not the original guitarist to the police. It was Stuart Copeland and Sting. And I forget the name of the guy yeah, that was I with the know. band. But Andy Summers was about 10 years older than the other two. Uh, they, they, it was uh, put together as kind of a, a one-off project. Sure. They really liked Andy's playing, and as Stuart Copeland said, Andy Summers really expanded Sting's songwriting abilities because he could now write more difficult stuff. The previous guitarist, you know, was like three chords. Yeah. And now here's Andy, who's kind of virtuoso. Sure, he's great. And that, uh, you know, Sting, that, in Stuart Copeland's eyes, Andy Summers kind of helped make Sting Sting. Because at the time, you know, coming out of the punk scene, he got his name Sting because he's being made fun of. Then Sting becomes cool. Yeah. Uh, but as a performer, as a lead leading man, you know, Sting's got the blonde hair. You know, he's got the brooding face. You know, he's a good-looking guy. Great bass guitarist. Mm-hmm. Good songwriter. Yeah, you know, all the makings of a guy who's about to become one of the best performers in the world. I'm, you know, to this day still a huge fan of The Police. And... Um uh, as you know, I was mad at Sting for many years for breaking up the police. It, it took me a while to get over that, and, and it took me a little while to, to embrace his solo career just because I, I thought those three guys together were, were magical. And that, that, was, that was probably not a band that was ever built for the long run just because they, they weren't longtime friends that got together and played. They were just the best of the group of mus- musicians that happened to be around, and they kind of gravitated towards one another, and they all had pretty strong personalities. Especially Stewart and Sting, 
Yeah, and they they were always they were really always a band that when they were done touring or making an album, they would split and go their yeah. separate ways. They weren't buddies. No, they were not. They weren't. They were not friends. They knew each other. They were, you know, they had working relationships. They kind of knew each other through the club scenes. But when they started to work and get together, but you're right, they were never tight. They were never brothers. They were never. It was just was. It was the makings of a band that kind of knew they had a um, their short you know, shelf life. Yeah, you know, a timetable on on how much time they were going to spend together. But there's an example of the police, and as you just played Roxanne, you hear some reggae influence in there. I was never a fan of reggae, but obviously the police were. Mm-hmm. And so I got exposed to probably, you know, that that type of, of music where I've, I've never gone deep into the reggae, but I have an appreciation for it. Sure. So kind of an example of why I, I don't like when people just want to bash a certain genre because there's usually little elements that can be taken out of it and used in an air, a genre that I like. Right. All right. So those were my honorable mentions. Good. So they, we'll were, they were good. I, I, your honorable mention could have been a top 10 list. Thanks. Um, so we'll circle back to number one. And again, like Sean, uh, a guy who really, you can't give enough accolades to, and thankfully he's kind of gotten a resurgence in, in recent memory with a movie that came out in in his honor. And of course, I'm talking about Freddie Mercury and the band Queen. Buddy, you're a boy, make a big noise, playing in the street, gonna be a big man someday. You got mud on your face, you big disgrace, kicking your can all over the place, singing, we will, we will. The thing I, I appreciated so much about Queen is they were always known, and it was something that they intentionally did, was to engage their audiences. And I think the movie does a great job to capture that, where they're actually, this song in particular, which is written by Brian May, where the concept is actually coming up with something that the audience can do in support of the song. So when this is played in concert, in the movie, it shows the fans stomping on the on the floor and clapping their hands. It's it's an interactive experience. And when you're talking about performances and performers in the 1970s, I don't think it gets much better than Queen and a crowd interaction than what they were able to do in their in their career. You know, now granted, this is not the 1970s. You know, referencing the the famous performance at Live Aid, but I think that epitomized. What made Freddie Mercury great was he, he took a, a stadium of 100,000 people and made people feel like they were right there with him. And he had this, uh, you know, especially, you know, early on in the 70s, there was nothing like him. You know, the, this guy who was, it, it looked like he came out of, out of a, a Broadway musical, you know, the way he's just like waving his arms and bringing people in. And, you know, they, there's, they say there's a difference between acting on stage and acting in movies is because... People can't necessarily see you. There's not a close-up from the camera. So you have to be over-the-top expressive. And to me, that's what Freddie really brought to his performances was he was just over-the-top and just with the hand gestures and, and the way he moved around the stage. He just he didn't just stand there and sing, even though he has an incredible voice. Yeah, and I think he brought out in the other band members, you mentioned John Deacon. I mean, John Deacon is he's going to stand there and play his bass. Right. Brian May, for all of his abilities, is not going to run around on stage. Roger Taylor 
is one of the best drummer singer combinations maybe in rock history but he's behind a drum set sure so your band the rest of your band is limited you need that performer that can bring out the essence of the concert to the crowd and nobody and i mean nobody did that better than freddie mercury well, I watched a documentary about Freddie not too long ago where they talked about the band and that, you know, individually, each member was okay. and But together, they, much like you too, I think we might have talked about that in one of our other podcasts, you know, the sum of, you know, together, they were incredible. And they, they understood that and realized that, that everybody kind of had a role. So if you have too many moving parts on stage, it draws the attention away. You know, you talked about during my episode about, you know, with Waylon Jennings, you didn't see the rest of the band because the spotlight was just on him. Right. And it's kind of the same with Freddie by having, we didn't have too many moving parts out there. Freddie's allowed to just be this wild man and it all kind of fits. And you could tell John Deacon was fine with Freddie running around. He did not need to be out front. Exactly. And much like we just talked about with regards to Elton John, and not necessarily being the most critically received singer out there, but yet being so high on my list. Queen got bashed even oh, harder yeah. than Elton John. I mean, oh, yeah. Bohemian Rhapsody was was made fun of by just about every rock publication out there. Like, this is going to kill their career. Yeah, they were, they had a couple of hit songs before that. And then they come out with this this night at the opera, and it's like, you guys, you guys just blew yourselves up. And... They, they, the, the critics, you know, any critic that's going to come out and say, oh, yeah, I was in favor of Bohemian Raps. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, they, they were bashed over and over again. Uh, but fortunately for them, you know, we think about Queen in the United States of America, uh, you know, Queen in England, uh, you know, they say you, you pay, I guess you pay your mortgage in England, you, you buy your mansion in the United States. I think that was you know, one okay. of the phrases that, the, that they used to, to say. Um, but they had a very loyal following in Britain and more so than in the U S and, and then they came over to the U S and the United States embraced them wholeheartedly. Now in the seventies, um, of, of all the artists we've talked about, um, you know, outside of maybe Paul McCartney, I, I remember hearing queen on the radio the most. Sure. They, they, they were humongous and like, you know, the, like the pop stations, the top 40 stations, it was in constant rotation here in the U.S. Um, but as oftentimes happens with pop artists, things die off. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, back when they had that big comeback at Live Aid, they were not popular in the U.S. at all. No, they were pretty much out of it. Uh, you know, they had come out with a with a album, Radio Gaga, that was promoted by MTV and then kind of disappeared very quickly. Yeah, they came out with a video that was controversial. Uh, I want to be free, where the the band members are are dressed in drag, and it did not go over well. And so they disappeared. Yeah, for about three years after basically you know another one bites the dust, uh, crazy little thing called love, and of course then they did under pressure with David Bowie. Mm-hmm. After under pressure, they you don't really hear from Queen much in the U.S until after they had their, their big breakthrough at Live Aid. However, in the 70s, they were arguably the biggest band that, you know, that was coming over. I mean, you, know, you can put them up, uh, right up there with the Led Zeppelins of the world, at least in the pop world. Well, yeah, and you, I'm glad that's a good point because, 
in terms of popular radio, top 40 radio. Right. They were probably the hardest. Well, you started to hear bands like Foreigner. Yeah. But Foreigner, Queen, they were pro- probably about the hardest rocking that you would hear on top 40 radio at, at the time. Yeah. And, you know, we talked about that, uh, you know, with Van Halen. They were not played on pop radio. Correct. You know, so they, you definitely had rock radio and you had pop radio. It, it even took Journey a while. It it did. It did. Now, there were some, right. you know, a, a little bit, but for the most part, you had to go over to the specific rock radio to hear those bands. It, but Queen, when I was eight years old, I heard them on pop radio. All right. So that is my list. I'll just do a quick rundown of my top 15. So my number 15 was uh, Meatloaf. And the song I play was Paradise by the Dashboard Light. Number 14, Rod Stewart, Sir Rod Stewart. And the song I play was Maggie May. Number 13 was Paul Rogers from the band Bad Company. And I played Can't Get Enough. Number 12 was David Lee Roth and Van Halen, uh, Jamie's Crying. Number 11, a young Bruce Springsteen and Born to Run. Number 10, Sir Paul McCartney and Live and Let Die. My number 9 was Debbie Harry and Blondie. And the song was One Way or Another. My number eight was Stevie Wonder and Sir Duke. Number seven, Billy Joel and Big Shot from his 52nd Street album. Number six, Ronnie Van Zant and Leonard Skinner with Gimme Three Steps. Number five, The Jacksons, Shake Your Body Down to the Ground. And Michael Jackson is my number five. Number four is Robert Plant and Black Dog was my song from Led Zeppelin. My number three was Mick Jagger from the Rolling Stones, and the song I played was Brown Sugar. My number two, Elton John, Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting. And my number one is The Great Freddie Mercury from Queen and the song We Will Rock You. Okay, that's great. That's I, I think that's uh, pretty similar to, uh, to, to my taste as well, as I thought it probably would be. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, the only one that, that I totally whiffed on and didn't even consider was meatloaf but uh, had i thought about it a little harder he probably would have been on the list but no that's that's a great list and and i'm glad that you kind of had me go through this exercise because i i probably don't pay as much attention to the 70s as what you do which is kind of interesting you know i I think it's because i lived through more of it a little bit more than what you did and like i said my memories are more more of the soundtrack and this forced me to go back, and like I said, I listened to Frampton's Come Alive, mm-hmm. and I was kind of glad that I did. I was like, oh, yeah, I remember this. This is this is good stuff. You know, it, it's funny. I When I listened to Sirius XM, I started out listening to so much 80s on 8. Yeah. You know, 80s on 8 was, was our go-to decade, but I'm more and more going back to the 70s, and I've really kind of fallen in love again with the music from the 1970s, and it's all types of music. And to me, this is just, you know, one sample size of all the great music that came out in the 70s. And, and you know, you and I, like we said, you know, the 70s were young. So we kind of have a tendency to look forward to when we get a little bit older. And I just thought it'd be good to step back and, and look at the 70s as to when, uh, think about some of the stuff that we really did enjoy from the music side. And I'm glad because I went back and rediscovered Tony Orlando and Dawn and knocked three times. I, I kid you not. I, I 
I enjoyed it so much. I think I listened to it like five times yeah, in a row. I just I, I pulled a Steve Kratz, and uh, <laughs> as as he would would re- repeat uh, the uh, I won't forget you by Poison over and over again. Sure. I did that with Knock Three Times. Like that's a great song. It is, and Candida is a good song. Too. Yeah, I I, they, I played that one as yeah. well. Yeah. All right, so that's going to do it for me. Episode number twenty two coming up next week. And Sean, what do you have on board? Well, Scott, uh, you know. You and I are a couple of fashionistas, right? You know, we're, we're a couple of stylish guys. So I thought, why not go back and let's do a little a little survey of the Gen X era, 70s, 80s, and 90s. Let's talk a little fashion. Okay. And some fashion trends. And, and you know, we'll talk clothes. We're gonna, we can talk hair. We can talk accessories, you know, like shoes and things like that. But, but kind of, you know, come up with each decade. I kind of want you to break it up, maybe do four or five from each decade and come up with some fashion trends. Could have been male, could have been female, but what you remember kind of as, as, as the happening trends. All right. I, I can already see some of my early childhood fashion statements that that I that I had. So I can well, think you thank our parents for that too. Well, but here's the thing though. It, it's amazing how, especially with fashion, things come around again. Sure. Right? So... Who I, I as growing up, I always thought the '70s were pretty hideous, and then suddenly some of the fashion started looking good, and you're starting to see it out there again. And the '80s are making a comeback, and you know, you know, eventually the '90s are going to do that as well. So let's let's give some love to the fashion world. Um, uh, you know, I, I kind of joke because Scott and I are very unfashionable, but yeah. that's beside the point. You know, we did live through it, and we saw other people who had some fashion yeah. sense. Yeah, we're we're wearing sweats, you know, just regular old <laughs> sweatshirts right now. Yeah. Our work for that we had on at work, so uh, you know, we do have other other jobs, but uh, yeah, just wearing sweatshirts right now, sweatshirts and jeans. So, all right, that's going to be cool. I look forward to it. And again, we thank everybody for tuning in to the Gen X Playback Show. Again, it just blows me away that we're talking to somebody now in European countries like Spain and France and England and India, Indonesia, uh, South Africa. It's like just hard to believe that we're touching so many people across the world. Yeah, I think it's great, and we we definitely appreciate it. Uh, You know, tell a friend, you know, like us uh, on whatever device you're listening on. Give us a a five-star rating. If you can write a review, that'd be great. Let's get the uh, let's get our little tribe growing out there. Sean, you want to give the folks out there your playlist from today's episode if they want to check it out on Spotify. Sure, they, you know I've created a, a channel. It's, it's called Gen X Playback Playlist, and if you want to go find my playlist that I put out there, it's going to be Sean's favorite performers of the 1970s. So put that in your search engine, and it should come up. And mine is favorite lead singers of the 70s. So uh, you can check that out on Spotify and. If you can give us a little bit of feedback, we'd appreciate it. And we'll keep this podcast going as long as there's interest in it. So can't thank enough uh, for everybody that's been listening. And we'll talk to you next time. See you.